Welcome to Beautiful Business, the podcast where functional evolves into beautiful. And now your host, Stephen Morris. Well, 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 I am so honored to host my dear friend, Denise Lee Yan, for today's conversation. And in the uh, spirit of full disclosure, Denise and I have been colleagues and friends for many years, going back to her days at Sony. And uh, we've had the honor to work alongside one another in several projects, and we've had multiple conversations. So Denise, welcome to the conversation and to Beautiful Business. Well, thank you, Steve, and thank you for the many years of friendship. It has been such a blessing to know you and to work with you. Oh, it's 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 uh, so much my pleasure. And, uh, you know, for those listening out there, uh, Denise and I have been uh, not only friends and colleagues in working alongside of one another, but we also act as sort of co-mentors for one another. So for those of you that, that don't have a co-mentor that you can spend uh, some deep time with and uh, have a person in your world that really understands the work that you're doing and kind of has your back, I, I str- strongly recommend it. So Denise, let's go ahead and dive in. Let me ask by uh, start by asking you, how would you describe the business that you're in? Yeah, well, I usually say that I am a speaker, writer, and consultant in brand leadership. And do you want to That's talk about- That's my little elevator pitch. <laughs> I love it. So uh, can you say a few words about the books that you've written and the talks that you give? Sure. So my first book, What Great Brands Do, is probably the one that I think most people um, know about or um, uh, know me from. It was a bestseller for a while and really um, was kind of the starting point of my career as a speaker. And then more recently, I wrote the book Fusion, How Integrating Brand and Culture Powers the World's Greatest Company. And so I... um, I have written on that topic, and now I speak on the topic of both brand and culture and the vital integration and intersection of the two. Also, you know, because I have a background in brand, a lot of the talks I give are on brand positioning, brand strategy, customer strategy, customer experience. But these days, and I think we'll get into this a little bit, more and more I've been speaking on the culture side of of the topic and talking about leadership and purpose and values and organizational culture and employee experience. I love it. That's excellent. Yeah. So uh, can you talk a little bit about your journey to become an expert in both brand and culture? And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious also how, um, you know, the, how you sort of the, the sequence from brand to culture, or did it start in your background from a culture standpoint or to begin more with brand side of things? I'd, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, well, it's probably best for me to start with my last corporate role. As you mentioned, we met when I was working at Sony. And so I was heading up brand and strategy in their corporate marketing group. And I had was hired into that job by a president and chief marketing officer who I think were very forward thinking about brand building. And even back then, this was a long time ago, long, long time ago, um, they started to sense that the Sony brand was losing some of its power and appeal. And so they brought me in to not only establish the 
the company's first ever brand office, really to kind of start the brand revitalization process. But they wanted me to work on it from an internal perspective. They didn't want me to, you know, say, oh, we need to do some, you know, new brand campaign or we need to redo our logo or anything. They said, you know, let's focus on internal brand engagement and alignment. So the, for the first couple of years at Sony, that's exactly what I did, clarifying and cultivating one common understanding of the Sony brand among everyone in the company, at least the North American company, who worked on the brand. And so um, a lot of the brand building that I have done since then has been more focused on internal engagement and alignment. Um, I, you know, I, I do work on some, I, or I should say I have worked on some marketing um, and more traditional brand positioning projects, but I've always been much more interested in helping an organization rally around and align and unify uh, with their brand. And so, um, in fact, when I wrote What Great Brands Do, my first book, the first chapter of that book was Great Brands Start Inside, meaning that great brands start brand building by cultivating a strong brand-led culture inside their organization. And coming out of that experience of writing the book and speaking on it, I found that most people wanted me to talk more and more about this. I mean, sure, the other um, six brand building principles in the book were also very interesting and provocative and instructive, but people were really interested in this idea of brand building starts inside. And then at the same time, I um, was working with a client and you know, one year they had brought me in to help them with their brand positioning. They were growing. This is a national retail chain. They were growing uh, very quickly and wanted to make sure that their brand identity was well established in the new markets they were expanding to. And then the next year they had me come in to work on the culture and the employee experience. Um, and what I found is that within this, this uh, you know, very well um, very successful national retail chain, they didn't see any correlation between the brand building work that we had done the year before and now the internal culture work that we were working on. And it kind of dawned on me that if a company like this struggles to integrate brand and culture, it's probably something that a, not, that a lot of other companies also don't know how to do. And that's what led me to write the book Fusion and to really start talking about the importance of aligning and integrating your external brand identity and your internal organizational culture. Yeah, I'm hoping great. that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And there's a rabbit hole that I really want to go into there. And I want to sort of put a pin in that and, and kind of come back to it. Um, the, the, the segue that I want to drift into now is I want to understand about a little bit about your sort of personal trajectory and your, your kind of life flow, if you will. And your, in particular, your life philosophies, however you might describe that. And, um, and, and you can start wherever you want to in terms of, you know, uh, how you were raised and, and in particular, um, the personal values. And what I'm also interested in from that particular thread of um, curiosity is to really explore how your personal values influence your work. And uh, and the kind of the intersection between those two things. 
Yeah, well, let me start, and then, um, because we, you asked, you, you raised a lot of important points just in that setup, and so I want to make sure that we can um, cover them well. So let me kind of start with a few responses, and then we'll, I'll let you take the conversation wherever you, you sure. would like. Yeah. Um, but I would say that, you know, I, um, a couple of things. One is I've always been kind of a student of leadership. I remember from very early on in my career, um, just soaking up all of the different leadership books. And, and um, at the time, there really weren't podcasts or videos, but definitely like talks and presentations on leadership. You know, big Jack Welch fan, um, big Warren Bennis fan, um, Jerry Porras. I mean, all of these, you know, uh, uh, all these really kind of luminaries in leadership. I just read everything that they um, wrote. And I think that's because I could see that, um, or I should say that it was really important to me to make a valuable contribution or impact through my work. And I sensed early on that I needed to understand what leaders did in order to be able to lead effectively and have that impact. So that's one thing that I will say. The other thing is that around the same time that I started my professional career, I developed or I started my faith journey. Um, I had grown up in a Christian household, but I really didn't have a personal faith, something that I personally believed in that impacted my, my behaviors and my attitudes um, and shaped my values until I kind of graduated from school, kind of started my professional career, um, got exposed to a church and a community that really kind of lit me on fire in a really exciting way. And so um, like the two things, my professional career, and my personal faith have always been somewhat related. Like I've always been kind of developing in both together. Um, but I will say that for probably the first, what, 15 years of my career, I, I kind of was trying to keep them separate um, or not trying to keep them separate, but I just kept them separate. And I think mm -hmm. that for a lot of people of faith, um, there's this tendency to think that, you know, your faith is something that's very personal. Um, it's something that, you know, you might, if you go to church or to temple or, you know, something that you do on your personal time, and it's really about your relationship with God. Um, and that has nothing to do with work and the work relationships you have and the stuff you have to do every day. And so I think for a long time, they were two different separate spheres of my life. But, you know, um, this topic of integration, which I just talked about in terms of integrating brand and culture, I think has really um, been a personal topic for me in terms of how, um, more recently, how do I integrate these two parts of my life? How do, I, um, how do I express my faith in my work? And how does my work help me grow in my faith? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I uh, have been working to, to bring them together more and more. And I think I've been much more comfortable, in this, let's just say in the last five years, talking about this um, because I think that, you know, that I, I, maybe that was also part of why there was separation is I wasn't sure that I really wanted to share about my personal beliefs. Um, but uh, yeah, today I, I kind of feel like this, the integration of all aspects of my life is really critical to being an authentic person. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, going back to the examples that you gave earlier, or even like for me, reckoning back to the time where you and I first got to know one another and we were working together when you were at Sony. Like, I wonder how much um, conscious awareness you had about 
um, as you're de developing your leadership philosophies, your leadership style, and your approach to leadership, uh, because I know you are a leader at Sony, there were many over there. I wonder how conscious mm -hmm. you were about how your, you know, these, these personal philosophies and even your faith uh, influenced the way you approached your own leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that more deeply. I will say that the chief marketing officer who hired me at Sony was probably the best manager, leader, whatever you want, boss, you know, whatever you want to call him that I've ever had in terms of providing a real role model for what does leadership look like. He was equally inspiring and challenging, but funny and um, I want to say overly personal, but I think, you know, he was real. And he also had very much of a, at least what seemed to me to be um, an other's orientation. How can I help other people become better? How can I lift up other people? And that's really kind of the first time that I saw a leader caring about like lifting up his own boss. So, you know, he would be always thinking about what can I do to help the president of Sony North America? How can I um, help him reach his goals? And so just, I think, um, and, and I don't really know what this person's, you know, personal beliefs and faith were, but I think that really just kind of opened myself up to that's the kind of leader that I would like to be. And um, so, as I said, he, he kind of provided a really great role model that I've tried to, um, I've tried to follow in many of, of the opportunities I've had since then. Yeah, that's great. You know, one of the things that I've noticed and this, this has been kind of a slow arc of, of either time or change is that, you know, we all know the mythology that exists in most business worlds, which, you know, goes something along the lines of, you know, check yourself out the door, don't bring your whole self to work. And it seems mm. like to me in, in a lot of, at least the way more and more organizations, uh, both corporations and, and other, other non-corporate, uh, you know, nonprofits and uh, academic organizations are seeming to do more work around embracing the whole human being. And, you know, kind of mm. by that, I mean, is, you know, the, um, the realization that a lot of organizations are beginning to have is that when the whole person is invited to show up within the work that they're doing, they're, you're actually getting, the organization is getting the best of that individual. And so mm -hmm. instead of, you know, quote unquote, checking one's self at the door, uh, the, the converse is beginning to happen where, you know, our work lives and our personal lives are really more about wholeness and integration. And, you know, back to your earlier point, and, and I know the wonderful work that you do and what you've written on in terms of uh, uh, fusion, where, you know, integrity is part and parcel to an organization where how it represents itself in the outside world ought to be congruent with how it represents and how it lives itself inside the culture. And, and that goes for, uh, you know, the, the boardroom and, and, you know, small conference conversations or what happens the, around the conversations around a, a water cooler. And I'm, I'm curious from your yeah. perspective, um, since we've both, you know, been on this planet a little while and, we, we have uh, diverse experiences and <laughs> working with a wide range of organizations. If you're noticing something similar and, and how is that showing up and, and maybe is that even giving you permission to be more of yourself 
from your, you know, bringing your, more of your personal values and beliefs into your work? Yeah, well, first of all, Steve, I think you might have just called me old without no. really saying that word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness, no. But it's true, you know. Um, oh, my gosh, I do feel old. And uh, for some reason, like, my husband and I tend to attract friends who are decades younger than us. And so we kind of get into this delusion of thinking that we're a certain age. And mm. It's always a good reminder to, to, as your point, I've been around for a while. I've made many trips around. Um, around the sun. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, you and I both, I get it. Uh, let's just call yeah, that seasoned. Yeah. How about that? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, seasoned or experienced, right? Yes. Um, no. So, but yes, absolutely. I do think that in general, um, there has been a movement and I think it's a really positive movement to encourage people to bring their whole selves to work and to be more authentic and to, um, yeah, to be on the outside, what you are on the inside and vice versa. And so, you know, in fact, I would say that like um, for many years, people would encourage me, oh, you should do more personal branding work. You, know, you should really talk with folks about how they should develop their personal brand. And for the longest time, I really resisted that because I kind of felt like that term personal brand had this um, connotation of you know, what do you look like? How do you present yourself on social media? You know, what clothes do you wear? Um, you know, what books do you recommend when people ask you for that? You know, all, all these external things. And I have always been much more interested in the true person who you are. And, um, and then making sure that how you present, how you show up is the best representation of that, but is truly um, authentic and is, is true to who you are. And so um, I, I feel like um, that has been kind of my personal journey as well as what I advise other people to as well. I mean, I will admit, Steve, that um, some of it has to do with this idea of being experienced. And I think, um, you know, early on in my career, I was probably, I was very focused on having people respect me and think I was smart and believe that I was, I could have valuable impact on their business. In fact, I used to always say that I'd rather be respected than liked because I really just wanted people to kind of value what I had to offer. And I think, um, uh, for better or for worse, you know, we don't have to get into this topic, but I think that when um, someone uh, self-identifies as a Christian, sometimes there's an assumption that, well, they're not as intelligent or they're not as intellectually rigorous or, you know, um, they're uh, maybe closed-minded or judgmental or, you know, whatever. And I felt that those associations would really detract from my from my ability to establish credibility and to establish a respect that I felt was so critical. Um, but you know, what has happened is through the years, I kind of feel like I have, I have developed whatever respect I'm going to get at this point. You know, if you, if you don't think I have something of value to offer, I nothing I can do now is going to change that perception. Sure. And so I'm kind yeah. of a lot more comfortable with just being like, this is who I am. And, um, yeah, and so I think that that's also been why I've been much more comfortable talking about my faith and um, making a more um, uh, concerted effort to integrate my faith and my personal values and have those be expressed through my work. It's so interesting. You know, I'm going to make some assumptions about some of the folks that will listen to this conversation. And I would I would 
venture a pretty strong guess that a lot of them are of a younger generation. And maybe they're even listening to a podcast like this and they're thinking about, well, how do I, you know, climb the ranks and, you know, make a name for myself like someone like Denise has. And, you know, I wonder what advice you might give them based on this now wiser version of yourself who has already done the work of proving yourself out into the world, gaining the respect that you've gained, and yet potentially with the with with the potential, and I don't put words in your mouth, but you know, still owning the individual that you are and and allowing that individual to show up in in the workplace and all of all of what they do. Yeah. Well like I think it comes down to a couple things. One is to um, have your own definition of success. To be really clear about what are you trying to do in the world? Like, what is the impact that you want to make or what do you want to be known for? Or kind of, you know, what does success look like for you? And for you to, um, to be very clear about that and to own it for yourself. And the reason why I say that is because um, I think for a long time, I was chasing after someone else's definition of success. In fact, I always say that, you know, for some reason, I don't know how I got into my head, but my goal was that I wanted to become a vice president by the age of 30. It didn't matter where I was as vice president, no matter what kind of vice president I was, yeah. I just wanted to be a vice president by the age of 30. And, and by the way, because I'm Asian, I have to tell you that, yes, I did make it by just a couple of months. But I, did, <laughs> I did achieve my goal. But, you know, it was kind of like... Um, you know, after I achieved it, I was like, well, that was, what, what was that all about? Why was mm. that so important? And um, that was also part of my um, discovery. Working at Sony, the first few years of that job, I, that was my dream job. It was what I always wanted to do, what is what I had been working towards up until that point. And then you know, I turned 30 and I realized, well, I'm probably going to be working for another 30 years at least. And if I just like, if I just had my dream job and I just peaked, is it all going to be downhill mm. from here? And so I really had to realize, okay, what what am I going for? You know, what is my what is my own definition of success? I think that's one thing that I would advise people, young people to. Um, and that's not to say that it can't change over time, but I think this idea of really being clear about what you believe is success and then going after that. Um, the second is to have um, really clear personal values. Um, you know, uh, I, I talk with companies all the time about needing to have core values for their organization. Well, you as an individual need to establish your own core values, the things that you believe in that will guide what you do, um, how you do it, um, you know, and really do the hard work of challenging yourself to clearly articulate them. I always say, write them down. Um, I pray through my values every week and I uh, do an assessment every month and every year to find, to kind of say, am I living by these values? But really, I think using, identifying and then using your core values to help you make decisions about about what to do, what not to do, um, about how you're going to do things, um, how you're going to relate to people, et cetera. I think that that's um, such a kind of critical aspect of um, of developing over time is, is kind of staying centered on those things. That's so good. Yeah, really, really helpful. You know, it might be also helpful for uh, for this conversation 
you know, that I was in a meeting with a client today and um, it was an executive leadership team. And one of the questions that came to me was, you know, something along the lines of, um, you know, here we are in the time of COVID uh, and should our core values be changing because of we have to adapt to, you know, the situation of the world right now. And I went into this conversation and it'd be interesting for us to kind of delve into this just for a moment around the difference between the, the core values, which in my opinion are more permanent, um, stable, solidified attributes that can define or should define how we show up in the world and, and what is most important to us versus those changeable things that um, might be more malleable based on, you know, a given time period or situational crisis or, uh, you know, wherever the strategic direction of the organization is going. I'm curious on what your perspective is between, you know, the, those things that are, that, that I would put into the category of permanence versus changeable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I would love to hear what you told your client, yeah. um, because I think this is a huge issue. I think it is something that people really struggle with. And to your point, I think now in this time in particular, um, with so much changing around us, I can see a lot of leaders asking themselves this question. So I, I will kind of try to answer and then I'd love for you to answer sure, as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say, I would agree with you that your core values are the things that you you lock in and that you stay committed to. Um, you know, again, like I think, like I said, every year I kind of go through this process of reassessing my values. And if I feel like I need to change them at that point, um, I may, but it's usually more, um, like how I define the value or how I express the value in the particular situation. And so that's kind of maybe where I would, I would draw the differentiation and say, um, you may change what the expectations are associated with that value or the behaviors that, that might, um, you know, that, that might express that value. You might need to change those um, to address the specific situation that you're in, but, um, your core values are are your core, and so they they do need to be ones that you are um, permanently committed to. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I completely agree. And and you know, to your to your question, I'll take the invitation up. You know, the way I asked or responded to this particular question is, I said something along the lines of, "Your core values are constants." They are the drumbeat, the, the rhythm line that drives your life forward. They are the markers in which you measure how you want to live your life. And that could be defined in lots mm -hmm. of different ways. Uh, you know, how you, mm -hmm. um, how you communicate with the people around you, uh, how you show up in the world, et cetera. And mm -hmm. I went into kind of a personal um, uh, sort of sharing. It was like opening my a proverbial kimono of, you know, talking about what <laughs> some of my personal core values are and, you know, that have to do with love for family, um, that you mm -hmm. know, practice a, a, a spiritual practice that has to do with a sense of connection to things that are more powerful than I and the animating forces of life, um, you know, senses mm -hmm. of freedom and curiosity, creativity. And then I said, but yet there's, there are these things that sort of are in, in the corporate world, uh, you know, kind of operational principles. 
and operational principles mm -hmm. kind of connect to core values and they can be modified based upon whatever we're facing in our current situation. So that, mm. this again could be true in our personal worlds and it certainly can be true in our organizational life. So when I give an example, mm -hmm. you know, in this particular scenario, talking about how we respond to COVID could be an operational principle mm. based upon our mm. immediate needs and responses for the people that we're serving, including the rest of the folks in our culture. But the core values really mm -hmm. shouldn't change. They should, but, and the operational principles should come out of the core values. And, and it's almost like if you were to diagram it out, it's like there's an intersection between how a core value would show up and how the operational principle might, might express the spirit of that core value based mm -hmm. upon mm -hmm. a, a situation that we're all facing or that that organization is yeah. facing. That's really helpful. I like the the terminology and the the, um, the discrimination or distinction between the operating principles and the core values. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So I'm going to go back a little bit and and talk a, a little bit about um, you know it's interesting. In early in the conversation, you shared the the contrast between you know Sony and the way that they wanted to start with kind of like an internal brand practice, which. Um, mm -hmm. There's lots of different term, terms that we could put to that. And then the contrast between the, this other retail organization that you worked with and how they wanted to start on the outside and, and they didn't see the correlation on the inside. I wonder from your perspective, um, let's just play with the chicken and egg conversation, which comes first, mm -hmm. brand or culture, or what should come first uh, if in an ideal world mm -hmm. an organization's thinking about uh, focusing on and investing into the both and, where should they begin? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, usually I say it depends, meaning it depends which one you start with depending on your situation. And I, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more, but the way that you just articulated that question um, kind of in terms of uh, how should, what should come first, um, makes me think that I might answer the question differently. So I'm sorry, I'm kind of processing out loud here for a moment. But just to add, first, let me just answer the question the way that I normally answer it, which is, you know, you can start either with your brand or your culture. Um, and I, it usually you should look at which one is stronger or clearer or more definitive or more unique. Um, and and then you know try to bring the other along with with in, into alignment with that. Um, and I do find that most organizations have a clearer sense of their brand identity or their desired brand identity than they do about their culture. Um, and so, in fact, in my book Fusion, I lay out the strategies for integrating brand and culture. And four out of the five strategies are written from the perspective of now that you know what your your ideal your desired brand identity is, how do you cultivate a culture that that um, will help you realize that? So I am just even in the book kind of showing my bias that I think that most organizations probably um, should or you know will start with their brand. Um, but I did write this the fifth strategy to acknowledge that some companies have really definitive, clear. Um, powerful, not in the sense of, um, you know, uh, obnoxious or, you know, kind of um, off-putting, but just really healthy, vital, effective cultures 
that then that they're not getting credit for out in the marketplace. And in that case, it probably makes more sense to start with your culture and then try to build your brand identity, maybe taking some of your internal practices and your internal values and sharing them with the outside world. Mm. So that's how I would normally answer the question. But um, I have to say that given that, you know, we, you're running a business, you're running an organization to have impact. Um, and while, yes, the impact should include your internal stakeholders, I think um, it's really important to make sure that you're having an impact with your external stakeholders, so your market, with your customers, with your partners, um, with your community, with society at large. And so if you are really focused on what is the value that I can create for the outside world, I think you will most naturally start with your brand. You'll most naturally kind of think, okay, this is the kind of identity we want to have, and you know, this is the kind of impact that we want to have in the world. And then how do we as an organization organize and operate and, and um, you know, work with each other in order to make that come true? So um, I guess I'm, as I'm processing out loud, I'd say that I think for the most part, I would advise you to start with your brand because you do want to be impact and um, value oriented. And I think that that primarily comes from your, from your brand and your external stakeholders. Yeah. Does that make sense? Am I, am I it does, making yeah. sense it's, at all? I'm yeah, you're making a ton of sense. And, <laughs> and, and I think this particular question, uh, you know, having done lots of what I call brand evolution programs uh, that are attached to culture is a question that folks in the C-suite wrestle with. And in particular, what I see this question, where, where this question shows up most, um, I don't know, most acutely is probably the right way to put it is, those organizations that are more in sort of the startup stage, and I don't mean, you know, just coming out of the nest and fledgling, but they're really trying to figure out what is their mature presence in the world and how do they, especially when they're a fast growing company, how do they kind of catch up to where they want to be? And so there's this element of, mm. you know, people have invested into the company. They have a vision for what the company is and, you know, whether it's products or services or a fusion of the two and how that might show up. And they're trying to, they're trying to kind of get it right. Uh, smart organizations are, are doing that more and more so definitely differently than back in the dot-com days, which was, you know, you know, I don't know, 20 something years ago now, 20 years ago now um, or more um, where they were just, that was a land grab and they was just going for bigger. Mm -hmm. But I think Today, organizations are much more focused on the long game of business, which means they're trying to get it right. And so I hear a lot of questions of if, if we're going to invest into um, one or the other, uh, where should we begin or where makes most sense to begin? So it's a, it's a question I hear out in, out in sort of the business world quite frequently and it's a question I think a lot of people are sort of grappling with and figuring out well where to start where do we where do we begin with all this? Yeah, yeah, I can see what you're saying, um, and I do think that you know there the the one of the challenges one of the primary challenges of starting with your brand first is that you can have a vision that is totally unrealistic, unattainable, um, you know, just it just is not you're not going to get there and nor should you try to get there 
um, given where you are and what you what you have and what you know everything. But um, and so that that is a risk by starting with your brand first. Um, but I will say that in general, and maybe this is less so with kind of newer or emerging companies, more with established companies, that leaders often think that they have a really great culture, you know, and um, they they just feel like, oh, you know, our culture is our bedrock, and we need to we need to um, just let people know about that, and and um, I find very few organizations truly have a unique and healthy and sustaining culture that is worthy of building a brand identity around. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's very unusual. And, um, you know, if you, if you do, I think that this is extremely valuable, but, um, I, I just find that most, most people probably overestimate their culture and um, the, the, yeah, the importance of it in um, kind of building their identity as an organization. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, you have, um, you know, it, what I think is a really beautiful paradoxical or seemingly paradoxical um, statement that I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, comes out of what great brands do. And and that that statement is great brands start inside. And I think you've mentioned this already. And mm -hmm. the reason I say it's paradoxical is that, you know, again, it, it part and parcel to this conversation is that great brands start inside and the inside is obviously culture. And, and, and so part of what I hear you inferring, not overtly saying necessarily within that statement and invitation is what I hear it as is that in order to build a great brand, you have to you have to begin on the inside and you have to cultivate from the core, what I would call the heart and soul of the organization and the people that are, you know, either the founders or the leaders in charge of shaping, not just what that brand is, but also what that culture is. Do you see it as a paradox? Yes. Yeah, no, I think that's a very important actually clarification. Um, yeah, you know, and I think maybe the best way that I could articulate it is that um, you you want to like be brand led in terms of you want your desired impact on the world to be the thing that really guides um, what you what you do and how you do it, um, and the the way that you get there is by cultivating a culture that is aligned and integrated with that identity or that vision. Um, so it's not, I'm because I, I, I now can see that um, what I said previously might have been construed not the way that I wanted it to be. Mm. So absolutely, um, that, you know, it really is about um, knowing, you know, what you want to stand for. And then yeah. building and cultivating a culture that enables you to become that. Yeah. And, and the, the sense that I get quite often is that it's, there's some counterintuitive elements that as, you know, as I work with business leaders and, and I know you do as well, you can feel them sort of grappling with, you know, okay, this is incredibly complex and it's sort of, it's all about people, but it's all about public presence, but it's, you know, so if it's about people, it's about culture. And if it's about public presence, it's also about people. 
where the heck do I begin? <laughs> I can think. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. we as consultants and advisors and, you know, writers and speakers, we're, we're trying to help them navigate and come to ground on the complexities that within this, that are within this and understand how important it actually is uh, to the, you know, sort of the fate, the future and the well-being of, of their company and especially to all the people that are involved in the organization and not just inside the organization, mm-hmm. such as the, the, you know, the, the team and the team leaders and everyone within the culture, but also folks like investors or community members and certainly customers mm-hmm. and things like that. So we start overlaying, mm-hmm. you know, larger businesses that touch many different types of groups of people. And all of a sudden this conversation around brand culture fusion becomes a much more complex uh, set of considerations to navigate. And I wonder, mm-hmm. um, you know, going, going back into a little bit more bigger picture, what is it that you're seeing that these days, and I'll just say these days within the last 18 months, especially related to COVID, people are really struggling with when it, when it comes to this brand culture fusion and, and sort of all that's considered within that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think that, you know, the last 18 months have really changed the way we work and has have really challenged the way that you traditionally or typically would build, cultivate culture. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I'm based in San Francisco, and so I'm very familiar with all these, you know, huge tech companies in the city and in the, in the Silicon Valley that, um, you know, have built these awesome campuses with really terrific and um, you know unique and inspiring employee experiences on campus, you know, and and um, have kind of relied upon the environment to help cultivate the culture that they want. And now all of a sudden they don't have that, or, or I mean they have the campus but no one's there, you know. And so mm-hmm. how do you cultivate culture when you have everyone who's distributed um, across locations and time zones and their own individual life circumstances, you know, it's, um, it's much more difficult to create an employee experience that cultivates the kind of culture you're looking for. And so I would say that um, that, that is um, both the challenge and the opportunity for business leaders to really, um, to really focus on this, to really lean in and say, Hey, we can no longer, take for granted our culture or take for granted the way that you, you build a culture just by offering these you know, great perks and great environment, but that we have to be much more intentional about you know, how we communicate, how do we engage people, how do we um, recognize personal needs and differences among our employees, how do we um, empower and equip our employees when we're not seeing them every day. Like, these are hard things that, um, that are you know, much harder than making sure that you have a really great gym on campus or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that, that's the work that business leaders are called to today. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and those complexities, I mean, I think there's so many of us right now that wish we had a crystal ball that could see, you know, I don't know, 12 or 24 months or even three years into the future to understand, okay, what, how, how will these things that are frankly out of our control, uh, COVID being one of them mm-hmm. and other things being others, uh, how will this affect what, how we manage through what culture means to us. And, you know, one of the conversations I had with a, a CEO 
kind of in the middle of, of uh, COVID and, you know, they, they were grappling with all the things that you just described. How do we bond our team together? How do we do things like serve our customers in a way that's, you know, aligned with our defined parameters around what we think is great customer experience while we have, you know, a certain portion of our workforce that is working from home and maybe they're, out, you know, working parents and, you know, trying to you know, teach a classroom or, you know, share a, a living room desk with their, their six-year-old or eight-year-old or 10-year-old. And it's, um, we don't know how that's all going to change. There may be, uh, mm-hmm. what it feels like is there potentially is more elasticity in terms of maybe our definition of what culture means, not the core definition of culture. Certainly that hasn't changed. At least I don't think it has, uh, but maybe more elasticity in how we treat what culture can be. And I wonder if you're mm. feeling the same kind of thing. Hmm. Well, can you say more about that? Because that sounds really intriguing to me about having more elasticity and what culture can be. Um, can you tell me more about what you're thinking when you say that? And I know that, I, you know, I'm not sure that you were prepared for me to ask you questions, but I'm hoping this is okay. Totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm still in the middle of it. So I don't know that I have a clear answer mm-hmm. on this, but I have feelings around it. So in, mm-hmm. from my perspective and, and, you know, for, for your purposes and anyone who might be listening, you know, a, a good portion of the work that I do is also, you know, this uh, on the cultural side of things. And some of my assignments are purely culture where we're working mm-hmm. or I'm working with teams to really get them fully aligned and fully you know, rallied around what their, you know, cause or purpose might be and how we live up to the core value set and how do we attract new employees and engage the current ones and a wide variety of things around that. And it feels like the the more concrete previous definition of culture had to do with we're all working together more or less in the same physical or geographic proximity, although that's not true with organizations that have multiple offices and things like that, but they still bonded together based on physicality and geography. And now it feels like people are having to broaden because of COVID, having to broaden their perspective and perhaps even their approach to how do we then create something like true belonging and team engagement in less physical proximity scenarios. And so mm-hmm. then because of that that unfortunate reality, which we're going to be, I think, living with for some time now, the, you know, the approaches behind that now have to change. Be, and, and because the, the actual definition of um, the broadness of how we treat a culture changes. And so it yeah. just feels like to me, it has more to do with uh, or less to do with on on one side, less to do with the physical proximity, even though collaboration and mm-hmm. and you know sometimes meetings face to face are really important, and more to do with how do we create you know true belonging amongst team members, regardless of where they are, so that we can mm-hmm. not just get the work done at hand and we can we can still be head down and focus on the tasks at hand for individuals, but also come together as a team who is bonded, who has a sense of belonging even though they might not be in the same physical proximity as one another. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Steve, what, what, as you were talking and explaining um, 
the elasticity, which I think it makes a lot of sense. It made me um, think about, it, it touches on something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is that the, what it means to be a leader today, uh, what the responsibilities of a leader are today are very different now. Because I think, again, in the past, you might have relied upon kind of more of the institution, you meaning a leader, might have um, relied more on the institution and the physical building and the facilities and everything to kind of create this culture. And so you are much more focused on driving you know, the specific work product that your people were doing and, you know, just kind of, um, yeah, kind of more, mainly more of like a management kind of responsibility. Um, and what is required of you now is you are responsible for cultivating culture. You are the one who, you know, is working with your team and trying to figure out how do I engage each person? How do I connect them to to our brand and to the work they need to do to serve our customers, how do I connect them to each other, how do I stay connected with them. And so as a leader, the skills and the priorities that you must have are so different today. And I'm not sure that many leaders are well equipped to make that change. And so mm -hmm. I think that then that raises the whole issue of like training and upskilling and development opportunities for leaders that companies really need to be much more focused on as a part of culture building. Um, so I, I do think that the kind of the uniqueness of our situation has brought a new maybe understanding of culture and a new requirement for culture leadership. I, I completely agree with that. And I think you know that one of my core beliefs is that no organization, no business will ever out evolve where its leader is. Yeah. And so, yeah. and you know, so this, this happens on kind of every level without the, within the organization. So it's not just for the CEO or the C-suite, but it's for, you know, the VPs and for the director levels and even the managerial level, levels, because there's leadership that happens, you know, throughout those things. And so the reality is, in order for the organization to evolve to, and sometimes that just means evolving to catch up to where we are from a societal standpoint in dealing with something like COVID, um, the individual, uh, the individual leaders have to also evolve. So mm -hmm. to your point, which I think mm -hmm. is beautifully made, is you know the, the, the leader needs to be well-equipped uh, on their personal side of things in order for them to understand what kind of leader they are. And how do, mm -hmm. do they show up as both their best self and the most authentic version of who they are so that they can lead from that really rock solid stance and allow others to kind of show up and, you know, give them permission to do the same. Yes. And I love how we've just come full circle to where we started. I think, yes. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you know, this podcast is, um, it's based upon, uh, or at least thematically based upon a, a new book that I have coming out called The Beautiful Business. If I were yes. to offer you the, the phrase, uh, beautiful business, how would you describe it? Yes. Um, so I would say a beautiful business operates with integrity and imagination and makes a valuable impact. And I know like, you know, People sometimes don't like when speakers start things with the same letter or whatever, but I was just kind of like trying to like pull together everything that I have learned from you about a beautiful business. And it really is integrity, imagination, impact. 
and mm -hmm. how those things come together beautifully. I love it. Thank you. And are there businesses that, um, you know, that you've either worked with or you just are aware of out in the world that might be that might fall into that descriptor category? Yeah, um, a brand that I a brand and organization I really admire is Chobani and um, its founder and CEO, Handi Yulakaya, I think that's how you say his last name. And so if you go back to my kind of definition or phrase operates with integrity and, imagine, and imagination and makes a valuable impact. I feel like Shivani hits on all of those points. Um, you know, uh, they, I should say, um, Hamdi and you know, the leadership team truly believe on um, investing in the communities where they work and do business. And since um, Hamdi himself is a, um, an immigrant, um, they have taken it upon themselves to hire refugees and to bring people from all sorts of backgrounds into their organization to support the communities that they exist in and to really um, provide great job opportunities for immigrants and refugees. Um, they donated portion of, of their profits to charitable causes, um, and specifically causes in like Idaho and New York where they actually have manufacturing plants. Um, there's also the integrity of the product themselves itself. Um, they only use whole ingredients and um, you know, even as they innovate, I'm so kind of impressed with how, and this is kind of where the imagination comes in, how they're able to come up with new products and new ideas and new product lines, um, but that are still made with whole ingredients and are, and are good for you, you know, um, so I, I really um, admire them. I also, I think, you know, they value design. I still remember reading about how when um, Chobani, when they first started, um, Hamdi insisted on having this kind of unique shape to the yogurt cup. You know, if you think about like back 10, 15 years ago, um, all the yogurt cups were shaped like the Yoplait kind of cylindrical mm -hmm. design. Yeah. And he really valued design and valued the, the, the impact and the signals that you could convey and the better experience you could provide to design. And so that's why their packaging is so beautiful and so unique. Um, yeah, I could go on and on, but I just kind of feel like Shabani is a beautiful business. I love it. Well, we'll be sure to include them in the show notes. And I have uh, one more question before we wrap up here today. So uh, as you know, you've probably read on my blog, I, I published, I think twice a year, I try and put it out there, a, a list of books uh, for business leaders. And kind of what I entitle it as is these are non-business books for business leaders. And I wonder if you have any book or books that might fall into this particular category that you would recommend. Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's so smart to have a list like this because I think sometimes we can get so caught up in, in navel-gazing that all we do is read business books, and so we do need to kind of lift up our heads up and to read other things. Um, I do prefer nonfiction, and so a book that I read several years ago but still has stuck with me and has come back to me recently, which I will explain in just a moment, is called The Power Broker, hmm. and it's by Robert Caro, and it's about... Um, Robert Morris, who was the um, New York City Parks Commissioner and Chairman um, back kind of in this like 1930s to 70s kind of range. 
he really ran New York back then. Um, now, the book itself was written like in 1970. So, I mean, it is an old book and it is thick. I mean, it took me months to get through it, but it was fascinating to read not only about the history of New York and kind of the way that New York developed into what it, the city that it is today, but it was also fascinating to read about the power, um, the lust for power that he had and that um, really drove everything he did. And, um, and that's why I would say that it's, it's kind of relevant now more than ever. Um, you know, certainly there are many um, power hungry uh, like figures in politics these days. We don't need to name names too much, but I will name that recently Andrew Cuomo, it's come out that he really admires Robert Morris and really kind of wanted to um, uh, build his kind of reputation or kind of have the impact on New York that, that Robert Morris had. And I just find it so like, um, I don't know, it's just, yeah, fascinating that he, that Cuomo would pick this figure. Now having read the book, it's just like, it's mind blowing that someone would, um, would kind of pick that this person as a role model or as someone to, um, yeah, fashion your career around. Fascinating. Wow. Okay. Well, that's so a the, yeah. That's so a the book power broker by into. Robert Caro. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Oh, and I should also say that Robert Caro is an excellent writer, and um, he researched this book for years. And so there's a section, and in fact, there's a separate book he wrote about his writing process. But you just, as a writer, can learn so much from just reading his book and the way that he wove everything together. So that's another reason why I recommend it. Great. Great. Uh, you know, what I, what I'd also like to do is include that particular book on, on writing uh, in the show notes as well. Um, so yeah. Denise, I love it. Uh, thank you so much for the amazing conversation here today. It's always a pleasure to, to go into deep rabbit holes with you and to spend time with you. How can folks get up with you? Well, thanks for asking, and thanks for the opportunity to be on your show, Steve. I highly recommend people just go to my website, deniseleeyon.com, because it's really a portal to all of my writing. Um, you can download free chapters from my books, as well as access all sorts of other resources from my books. Um, you can you know, access my blog and my newsletter, um, learn about my speaking topics and how I might inspire and teach your community. And then it's also a portal to my social media. I'm most active on Twitter and LinkedIn these days. So DeniseLeon.com. Awesome. Wonderful, Denise. I highly recommend uh, those listening, check out Denise's pages uh, and, and in particular her speaking. She is a dynamic and wonderful speaker. Uh, she is a wonderful writer. I know she writes for lots of different publications as well as with her blog. And again, Denise, thank you so much for spending time here today and for the wide roaming and ranging conversation. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Beautiful Business with Stephen Morris. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. To download a free chapter of Steve's book, The Beautiful Business, go to beautifulbusinesspodcast.com. Again, that's beautifulbusinesspodcast.com.